0: Number eight, Managing for the Master. First quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start our next lesson, lesson eight, Planning for Success. It's on the quarter, Managing for the Master, till he comes. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Karen is going to offer our opening prayer.
2: Let's pray. Dear gracious and loving Father God, we thank you that you're always around us and over us and under us and within us so that we can live our lives in the peaceful and joyful awareness of your incredible love and mercy and grace. We want to pause here right now at the start of our discussion just to breathe and to focus our scattered senses and thoughts on you. And on your love, each one of your precious children, each one that has ever been and ever will be, for all of us who are participating in the class and all those who are listening to the podcast. And we thank you for the gift of your word that is like a treasure chest of wonders. And every time we open the lid, there are new and beautiful things to be revealed and explored about your character and your love. And may you bless our friend Daniel as he guides us on this adventure of discovery into your word and your limitless love. And as we come together to learn more of you, may we open our ears to listen closely as you speak to our hearts and reveal to each one of us the true and precious things we need to hear today. And may we leave this place stretched and challenged to grow with you and contented and joyful, grateful for all your countless gifts and blessings and overflowing with your love to share with everyone we meet. We praise you, we love you and we worship you now and now and always in Jesus name. Amen.
3: Amen. Thank you, Karen, for your thoughtful prayer. We are into the stewardship quarter, managing for the master till he comes. You had a capable teaching of John Pauline for the first seven lessons of this quarter. So we are now into lesson eight. Maybe as a word that the first quarter 2018 was also on stewardship. So if you are a teacher, there is a lot of good material there in that quarter, first quarter 2018. Of course, the lesson author was John Matthews, while this time it's Edward Reed. So it's two different authors. So the lessons are not exactly the same, but still, if you are a teacher, you will find a lot of good material in that quarter as well. Larry, planning for success is the topic of this lesson. How do we define success? in the realm of finances, possessions, what would you say? The lesson
4: calls it planning for success, not so much living with success. I think that's the key difference in understanding the whole process. Everybody looks for financial success. And I believe that especially the trust healing model idea of Adventism brings with it a holistic viewpoint of what financial success means. And it's really, I'm going to call it the circle of life to use a phrase that comes from a different area, but you cannot take without giving. There is no free lunch. The world does not operate in a vacuum. The growth that occurs is a result of people's collective positive decisions and the negative that occurs is also a result of collective decisions that deal with financial success. And it's a complicated concept If we polled everybody here and planned. Everybody has a different idea of what that means. So I think when we look at it as Christians... And talk about it in a church model. We need to be very careful that we don't create the concept that if you follow the rules, therefore God is obligated to do certain things in return.
3: In the introduction, it mentions Joseph. If you compare Joseph with his 12 brothers, would you consider him a success? A few months ago, we had the lesson on the Prince of Egypt. And we discussed whether it's Joseph or whether it's Moses. But still, it's a story from rags to riches. So many people would consider him a success. Interestingly enough, he died the youngest of all the brothers at mere 110. And of course, the lesson also mentions John the Baptist. Now he died at 31. So would you consider him success? Let's go to the memory text, Colossians 3, 23 to 24.
5: Whatever your task. Put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ.
3: So how would you see this text in the context of planning for success? Or probably a better question to start with would be, so what is Paul saying to those believers, the Christians who live in Colossians? They left the messy world of paganism behind. There were many detailed regulations, severe self-discipline needed to keep them. And now they've got a better inheritance. If you want to do business with God, what is it that you need besides giving up the world of self-indulgence? Do you think that when Colossians read this or had it read to them, heard it read to them, that they say, yep, this is a recipe? success this is helpful thank you for saying that this is truly inspired we are glad you told us this what was the value of this sean i think that they were being asked
6: to broaden their understanding of their individuality and the freedom that they now have as individuals who are serving the lord to create a different mindset about their occupation, about their tasks, about their responsibilities, their giftedness, etc. They were being reminded and requested to be a little bit more broad than thinking of themselves as slaves doing a task that they were bound to do by their taskmasters. So, in so doing, it would create a different model in their minds about how to approach
4: their everyday responsibilities.
3: Okay, thank you. And Larry? Paul
4: frequently talks about not being half hearted in what you do. Christ, in many of his discussions with his disciples, is talking about how you can't be double minded, uh, wishy washy. So I think that's pretty much what he's suggesting here is that whatever you're doing, whether it be here in Pine Knoll, whether it's what you're going to do tomorrow afternoon, and then on Monday when you start your regular job, for those of us who are not ministers, at the moment, Do everything you're doing committed to it because you're doing it for the Lord. And the reward that you get is the satisfaction from having done a well job. When you do something half-heartedly and you know you didn't do your best and it doesn't work out, or even if it does work out, there is no true satisfaction from having done a job
3: poorly. Okay. So the important thing there is for most of them, they find themselves in a situation which is beyond their control. So they have masters above them and they can't change it. So it's not being part of the free world, born free, born in USA or European Union, whatever. You choose your future, you choose your vocation, you choose your uh, job. Things are pretty much given to you and some of your masters might not be that forthcoming with much of a reward. There is not much inheritance that you are going to get as a result of a lifetime of work. Tuesday lesson is going to speak about 40 years of work. That is usually the span before people retire. And hopefully they will have some retirement benefits. They somehow will be taken care of when they are not active in the process. So he's telling them, whatever you do, do it from your heart. If you are doing it to the Lord, not to your earthly taskmasters, because you will receive your reward and your inheritance from him, not from them. David? maybe a little different perspective, doing it for God
4: as God's representative, showing that in spite of the circumstances and the attitude of your master or your employer, doing the best you can and doing it representing God may demonstrate the true
1: character of God to them. And not only will it benefit you, but it may benefit them, if not immediately, at least in the future. Okay. I think there's an underlying principle that is at work and this idea of whatever you do to put your full heart into it. And it's a contrast, it's a difference between selfishness and other centeredness. When you don't put your heart into it, you are selfish for yourself. You don't want to do whatever it is you've been asked to do. And so there is this when you put your whole heart into it, you're thinking about not yourself, about the task at hand, which you're asked to do, and you go above and beyond. So it's a development, it's a character, a characterological development idea, I think, that is at the heart of this concept. And that's why you're doing it for God, because you're building that right character.
3: Yeah. And the idea is that because you already belong to the Messiah, you already belong to a new world. Now, it's not a super spiritual world, so there are still aspects of the old world. And as far as your job, you find yourselves as part of that world and that system, which is not fair, etc. But you need to realize what is already true for you because you are in Christ. Sherry?
0: I was realizing the kind of bonding that comes from when you see people behaving like that and you know that God is within them, it's a bonding across all kinds of barriers. I know this week, it was interesting, we have a long driveway and it's up and it's not easy to come up and down. And there's a little trailer that comes up every week to take the trash out. And they're quite good at navigating this and then getting the trash can and taking it away and then bringing it back later empty. And this week, I just happened to be outside when the man was taking it. I thanked him and smiled at him. And he had the most brilliant smile. And he said, I love this place. It's just such a place of quiet and serenity. He said, listen, if you ever need anything, you just let me know. If you have something too big to fit in the garbage can, you tell me, I'll take it away. And I thought, here is a man that is taking his job seriously and putting his character and his caring into it. And when you feel that from another, you sense a partnership with them in this journey with God. And it's a joy to have that kind of community, even among people that you don't know. You sense. Here is somebody that is living what they believe and doing their very best. And there's just such a sense of joy about that.
3: Yeah, thank you. So for this new situation in which the believers find themselves They cannot bury their head in the sand. It's not only spiritual world, it's the world in which they are part of the process. And so Paul here in chapter three provides some, what here in England we would call the highway code, but not for driving, but for family relationships. And there he addresses the husbands, the wives, and the masters and the slaves, etc. So he has something to say to everybody. And it is in this context. And we will talk about people who find themselves in a dead end job or a job that it's not that satisfying or that it's not creative or maybe not even dignified, how our understanding as Christians influences that and what we can do about it. All right. Someday's lesson starts with Ecclesiastes 12.1.
5: Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them.
3: Okay, and the lesson asks, what's the message there for us? So probably the answer is not much message for us, or unless the years are already here. (laughs) It's It depends on how young you feel. Okay. Now, the idea of the lesson is that you look under number three, that you need to make your spiritual decisions about life work, about certain things before committing to marriage, because people deserve to know what they are getting into. And so the days of youth are the days when you make some far-reaching decisions that will influence the rest of your life. Now... Of course, in the days of biblical writers, if your father was a carpenter, you as a son will become a carpenter and you continue the trade because that's what God wanted. And there is not much decision about uh, what you are going to do in life. Regarding the marriage partner, the parents will take care of that. So there is no agony that you need to choose (laughs) your marriage partner, etc. But still, there are certain decisions that influence the rest of your life. And of course, then the lesson goes into the story of Jacob and that he made the decision to pay the tithe because God revealed himself to him. And as I put under number three, while certainly it's true and desirable that you make good decisions as early in life as possible, how fair is it to use 77-year-old Jacob as a role model for remember the creator in the days of your youth? So back to Livius, even if Jacob is a model for us, A number of you are below the 77 bracket. When I was a theology student in Czechoslovakia, the church leader said to me, try to learn English because we are going to try to send you to Newbold College. After Helsinki Act of Collaboration in Europe in 1975, the communist countries agreed that they will honor some human rights And so the narrative was that because we as Seventh-day Adventists don't have a seminary in our country, in Czechoslovakia, the authorities should allow me to go to a Seventh-day Adventist school abroad because I am being prepared to be some of the Adventist pastor, And so I was one of those fortunate because I got 336 days in England. So in September 81, I came to Newbold for 11 months. And so they warned me that I should try to learn English before because being in England, they wanted me to concentrate on theology rather than learning English. And so I enrolled in the evening language school and the textbook was called First, things first by LG Alexander. So the title for our lesson, Sunday lesson is first things first. So in the realm of money, possessions, finances, what are the first things first? I
7: wanted to just go back for a second, tell you my experience with that text, remember the Lord in the days of your youth. During part of my junior high and my high school I used to clean the back steps of apartment and the bus I rode stopped by a church. It was just a long route, maybe a couple of miles. And when I used to sit on one side of the bus, the bus would stop right in front of a church and right above one of the doorways was that text. And so I would say at least once every couple of weeks, I would be drawn to that text. And I must say that it was a very kind reminder month after month to see that text. And I don't know what effect it had on me, but it it was a, a, I'm thankful for that reminder that even when I was young, that I should remember God and try to walk the straight path. It was sort of difficult for me, but it was nice to be reminded. And I think that was a very important part of my maturation process, that gentle reminder every couple of weeks or every week, whenever I sat on that side or whenever I was awake to see that. So I'm very fond of that text.
3: Good, thank you. Nice experience, Dan. Michael, I didn't have a lot of altruistic motives
8: in choosing my profession. I didn't pray a lot to God about give me guidance and that kind of thing. When I graduated from high school, this was in Las Vegas, Nevada. I got a job that summer working in a soft drink bottling company. When I started that job, the first two hours of it, I learned everything there was about that job, and the rest of it was just drudgery. It was usually about 12 hours a day, sometimes 14 hours a day. And by the end of that summer, because as soon as we get to Labor Day, the summer vacation season is over in Southern Nevada, and I was out of a job anyway. I resolved this is not the kind of life I want. I don't want to work on an assembly line someplace. I better get an education. And so I decided to go to college, and then ultimately chose a lawyer. Now, It wasn't all the notion of what is in it for me. And in choosing to become a lawyer, it's a service industry. And the best reward you get is not the fee that you earn, but rather the success that is enjoyed by the client as a result of your efforts.
3: And I think that was a very strong motivating factor. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. At one of the big church events where you have this exhibition booths, I visited one educational institution who in their motto was there preparing students for success. I challenged those people and say, where did you get that from? Did you get that from the Bible or did you get that from the society? Because as you said, yes, if you get advanced degree, you are going to get a better paid job, etc. You are going to be perceived as successful in the society. So there is this upward mobility that comes with education, no question about it. However, there are people who are going to be stuck in those low-end, low-payment jobs, etc. And hopefully there is a measure of success or good news for them as well. Ashley?
9: I probably should be doing more listening when it comes to this question than speaking, but here we are, (laughs) at least in my limited life experience since apparently I've been singled out many times as like the younger one in this group. But I think it really helps when it comes to making decisions, when you can kind of figure out your priorities and values first, and then use that to kind of shape how you're going to make decisions, which can take time too, because you may have to do some like trial and error to figure out what that means for you. And that's okay. But when you can figure out what is important to you and what matters the most, it clears up some of maybe the indecisiveness that can happen when you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life.
3: And searching and trying to find and resolve it later. Yeah, saves a lot of time and headache. Thank you, Ashley. Iris?
10: When I read that text, it doesn't relate to money at all for me, but I think it's an encouragement to know God from our youth. And that is really something that I treasure. That I have grown up knowing, learning about God, learning about Jesus. I feel like I have stumbled and fallen, but I have not really lost sight of God in my life. And I think when we learn to live with God and we know who He is, we have many. Situations and much reason to be grateful, to express gratefulness to him. And then as we age, life gets more complex, life decisions get more complicated. And all of a sudden, (laughs) we have the experience that the disciples had. (laughs) Here they were following a master who could heal everybody, who preached the most amazing sermons, and who was just great to be around. But then came the time when he went to Jerusalem and when he was taken prisoner. And we too experience in life the darker moments. We experience that problems don't go magically away just because we prayed a while about them. And sometimes we experience situations where God seems to leave us in that unpleasant space in which we don't want to be. And I think that's when we really need those experiences from the past, knowing who God is, knowing how He has been faithful to us. And if we don't have those early experiences, it's very difficult to understand God when the path gets more challenging. So that's what I'm taking away from that text.
3: Good. It's a good summary. Both Ashley and you, Iris, summarized it well. And let's ask Bobby Joe.
10: I think the three most important decisions are. What will I do with God's demand on my life? Will I accept friendship with Him? What will I do with the time I have in my life? Basically, what career choice I'll make and how I'll use that to serve others. And then what kinds of friends and particularly what spouse I'll choose to walk that path of life.
3: Thank you. And I like the invitation more than the demand, because in a free universe, you can ignore that invitation for friendship with God. So it's more invitation than a demand. Thank you. Well said. Okay, Larry.
4: Paul's comments in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, where he mentions in the conclusion in 13, he discovers the secret. And since this is financial success, I'm going to add a paraphrase in. He has discovered the secret of financial success is to learn to be content and to trust God and Christ in every situation. As I've gotten older, that is something I wish I had understood at 40 and 50. My life would have been a lot less stressful had I practiced that.
3: Thank you. I noticed that it's something that is learned. So some will learn it earlier in life, some learn it later in life, and some <laughs> never learn it. But unless you put some effort into it, it's not going to happen. Okay, Monday and Tuesday lessons speak about the fact that life in this work and your level of success, mostly on financial level, depends on your life work. So what can we say about the blessings of the work during the usual 40 years that we have for it? Let's start with Genesis 2.15. How did the work function before the fall?
10: The Lord
5: God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it.
3: Okay, and to till and keep are the two verbs which are going to be used about the work of the priests. So to expound the boundaries, to take care of it. The priests are trimming the lights in the sanctuary and keeping the work of the sanctuary, doing so, they function as priests before the work. Let's read three seventeen. How it changes after the fall.
5: And to the man he said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life."
3: So work is going to change to toil. So there are going to be some changes because of the fall. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. So you've got only this life regarding the work. And let's read Thessalonians 3.8-10.
5: And we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked day and night, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat.
3: Okay, so can you see the difference before the fall and after the fall in the role that work plays? Can we do a little bit of biblical theology of work, look at work as the storyline progresses? Sean? Yes, there's quite a
6: transformation here. The question that I don't necessarily linger with too much, but others that I speak with do, is it imposed or is it consequential, these changes and these differences? I have interesting conversations with some of my workmates about related matters. Is this a curse that we are as humans currently having to experience? Or is there a way of understanding what we're experiencing as a consequence of our separation from God?
3: Yeah, and we talked about this before, that the Bible being written at the times when it is for people to whom it's addressed, chooses the word that probably we would not choose in our times. And so there are two activities on God's part. There is blessing, so whatever spreads the good thing, and there is curse, which means it's just the word used, whatever limits the effects of evil. And so in that context, we need to see work as a blessing and as a curse. So, in what sense it spreads the benefits of being created in God's image and being in charge of this world, and in what sense work can be a limiting factor of spreading the evil in this society. And for that, you need to move on in the storyline, come to Egypt, and the quotas, and the bricks, and the pharaoh, and then the Exodus story, and to see the context. And in that sense, it's a pity that the lesson doesn't do that, that we don't get a little bit of the storyline to see how the understanding of money and possession changes within the story, how it progresses. So what are the new things that Exodus brings, that Deuteronomy brings? Because there are amazing insights there. And then the time of kingdom prophets, which new perspectives the prophets bring. There will be in the next lesson when we will look a little bit about Jesus and the early church, the contribution that is made. And of course, I put a little bit under question two. I tried under number two to give you a quick summary of this, that in the New Testament, you have this correction of this Greek Gnostic idea that The truly important matters are spiritual. And Paul sees this in the first century as a perversion of the gospel and says, no, 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 we are not here just to get the souls to heaven. And okay, because you can't earn money any other way, so then you have to do some work. But if you don't do that secular work, but you do sacred work, then you are on a higher level, closer to God. And we get into all this misunderstanding that goes through the medieval period. And then, of course, you get into the contemporary period where planning for success means something completely different, because by shrewd investment, you can become a millionaire. You have this People who are under 30, yet they are incredibly rich just because of some clever ideas, startups, etc. And they are considered a paragon of success. Iris?
10: It is interesting that work started out to be a very noble calling where God invited us to care for what he had created. It allowed human creativity, human giftedness, To flourish (laughs) as we responded to his call. Then, with the alienation from God, work became an end in itself. And it became also a means towards proving ourselves worthwhile. And I think we see that today also in our society. We are our work, our whatever titles, whatever positions we have. What happens, however, when you retire? When that source of meaning and significance is all of a sudden gone, how do you prepare for that? People feel all of a sudden useless. They feel like they have lost a purpose. Or if a new boss comes and the workplace, all of a sudden, the culture at the workplace is not the same well, is it then all of us that not meaningful to work there anymore? So there is, yeah, there is the potential for work to have a place in our lives that dominates us in a negative way, in an unhealthy way. And I think then when you go to the Gospels, to the New Testament, and in light of embracing God again, there is a deep meaning in even the mundane work that we might be doing. That's true when you are a nurse at the bedside. That's true when you are a teacher. That's true when you are a doctor. But that's also true when you serve food or whatever you do. You have opportunities to allow God to shine through your life and to touch others by allowing Christ to live within you.
3: Well said, well said, Iris. So the story of creation is important because it shows this vocational aspect of the work. So. God creates this good world. So the fact that it's material doesn't make it bad. On the contrary, it's good world, which is full of all this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, the humans, who are going to act as his partners in bringing out more and more goodness out of that potential. And they have this capacity for creativity. And whether it's the world of ideas, whether it's artists, whatever type of work you do, there is this vocational aspect. They are both on equal level. They are both partners. So in all religions, you have people who create a temple and they put an image of their God in the temple. But in the Bible, God creates a temple because the Garden of Eden functions as a temple. And then he puts his image there at the center, Adam and Eve, so that they can be creative, so that they can emulate what God does. Neil.
7: It's interesting to note how we look at work. If it's something that we like doing, there's no problem involved. You don't even pay attention to the time that you put into it. But if it's something that you have to do, it becomes drudgery. It becomes toil. It becomes something that you do not look forward to. We're on the other
1: side of the coin. If it's something you enjoy doing, you want to get up in the morning and get going.
3: Okay. Thank you.
1: Livius? Maybe to add some science into this conversation as well. It's a natural law. It's a design law. The second law of thermodynamics says that a system tends towards decay if you don't put energy into it.
3: And that is the post-fall, okay?
1: Yeah, right. But nature is designed this way. All the ecosystems that benefit from one each other, working to provide something to the other. So I think it's helpful. And even in our own, if we don't practice it, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it, right? It's kind of that same idea. And so... Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. It's kind of a design law here.
3: Okay, and this is something that's going to happen post-fall. So there is a curse aspect to that. So when you are the most creative, you have the best ideas, you don't have money to make them happen. Once you have the money, (laughs) you don't have the ideas, they are gone. Once you get the team, (laughs) you can't accomplish it. Other time, you have the money to accomplish it, but you don't have good people on the team to make it happen. And so that's a constant struggle. How do you live in an environment which is less than perfect? I think it was Bobby Joe that mentioned, or was it someone else? You have the boss who doesn't understand. You have colleagues who are in jealousy, envy, and it threatens the work of the team. Do you throw the toys out of the pram, or do you try to find the way to work and live where the maturity comes, where being an adult comes in. So what can we learn about the work in the post-fall world? Karen?
2: I think it's really interesting how we measure success in the workplace and in our lives, because quite often it seems to be that we earn more money with every next job that we have, and that's what success is. But there's so many different ways to think about success. And I was just reflecting on that and thinking success is actually really quite personal. It's what our hopes and our goals are, and whether we achieve those or not. And that perhaps is one way to think about success, because it can be, what difference did I make in the world? How did I empower others? How did I bless others? I know people that have made a fortune, but they've wrecked their families. And what about relationships and relationship success? I also think it's really interesting what people do when they don't actually have to earn money when they're retired or when they have plenty of money and how they decide to spend their time in those moments. And I also heard that when you're in your 60s as a Christian, that's when you're actually most effective. And what do we make of that in the terms of success as well? So just throwing those out there.
3: And how do we measure success in terms of work? And definitely earning money can be one way of measuring it and not only because it influences your lifestyle but it makes you capable of helping people who are not so fortunate and because of circumstances beyond their choice they are stuck where they are but you can be a blessing to them and as you mentioned you can measure the success of your work how many people are blessed with what you do success to a formula 1 race driver <laughs> it's a different than to a nurse Larry. As much as
4: I enjoy traveling and not doing things, probably like everyone else, I am retired and yet I actually work more hours now in real work than when I had a real job because the idea of not working is totally obnoxious. And I find there's no purpose in life. And it really is the need to contribute. I think is what drives humanity forward. So I think it's a blessing. It's the yin and the yang. There's two ways to look at it. The glass is half full or it's half empty. Thank you.
8: Michael? I think of France of Assisi. He lived in the 1200s, of course, in this town of Assisi in Italy. And he came from a very wealthy family, but he became touched by God. And one of the things he did, and his parents thought he was nuts, And by today's standards, we probably think it was nuts too. But one of the things he did was in the piazza, which is like a town square, one evening he gave all his possessions away, took off all of his clothes, and was standing there naked. And he said what that taught him is when he got rid of all those physical possessions in his life, the only thing he had left was his relationship with God. And he said, then I realized I had everything I need." Now, I'm not about to go take all my clothes off the local town square but it's an admirable trait and when he tried to form the franciscan order which really they take a vow of poverty he got great resistance because he doesn't have any property and finally when he was being examined they realized wait a minute what he wants to do is live the life of the gospel and we're telling him he can't do that and that's a challenge for us today we need to try to live the life of the gospel and we have lots of distractions all the time. Well, it might be, here's a better job for you. Yeah, of course, you'll have to move across the country and you're going to have to live here and so forth. But you're going to make an extra $80,000 a year. And if that's the motivation, just the $80,000 a year, we've lost something. Yes.
3: Yeah, so there's a possibility to gain something and there's a possibility to lose something. And it's going to be an individual decision. So someone, by being a top-notch lawyer, can be a great blessing to humanity because he can use his earnings to bless people beyond someone who is in a dead end job selling ice cream, etc. So, if you have the potential to be a top notch banker, a top notch businessman, top notch lawyer, then your potential for doing good is different. But as also Bobby Joe mentioned, if you are a homestay mother investing in socializing Homo sapiens into members of society that are going to be contributing and blessing. That's your contribution and being blessing and your success, etc. So we need a little bit of nuance in that. Dan?
7: I would like to suggest that there are several different types of success and the motivations are quite different. And three of the four definitions of success I'm going to give are really based on self-interest. And I think you've heard me talk about this before, they are the people who are rules oriented. and success for them is being right and being able to tell other people that they're right. So do the Pharisees kind of attitude of success. And then there's the feelings kind of people who are trying to stimulate themselves and trying to get more dopamine effect than they can. And I think for them, success is getting a high. And then there's the me first kind of people that are much more inclined for power. And it's interesting that there are two varieties of these kind of people. We people in academic would like influence and fame because we can't get money. But the people in business are obviously after money. I think all of these three that are based on self-interest are easy to do because that's our natural tendency. On the flip side, if the fourth world, which I call others first, or we can call it anything you want to. I think that is someone earlier described as relationships. And it seems to me that that is not natural. And I think for us to participate in that requires partnership with the Holy Spirit because it requires, I believe, external energy because it is unnatural. And without that extra energy and extra whatever else that the Holy Spirit provides, I think it is impossible to really sustain that. We can pretend that, but without the Holy Spirit and without God's presence, I believe that's impossible because it's just not natural. So I think there's four varieties of success. Three of them are selfish. The fourth is very difficult to sustain because we so often try to do that ourselves
3: okay thank you yeah and what about those who can't achieve either neither money nor fame and the world would not run without them when the pandemic came you know the solution was simple just work from home Mm, sorry not everybody can work from home the society would stop if (laughs) because some people just can't work from home praise god for those who can and make their contribution working from home but not everybody can Are they important for the society, for the community? All right. We could talk about this a long time, but can you see how the story of creation shows the goodness of the material world? I put something about the materiality under number two, that whether you like it or not, Christian faith is rooted in materiality, in other words material world is good and God is engaged with it and you and I need to be engaged with it. And if you have the right relationship with things, then you can be a blessing. And you need to distinguish it from materialism, which is a trap that you serve the things and you are chasing whatever it is, whether fame, whether money, whether position, etc, or fun, you know, but you are a slave of that. But the story of creation shows the goodness of God. He puts two people there on our equal level. There is no more dignified job for Adam and the less dignified for Eve. They are all on the same level and they are asked to emulate the Creator and spread the goodness beyond the Garden of Eden. Remember, the story starts in the Garden but ends in a city because even God cannot go back. So certain things need to be taken forward. Now, fast forward to end of Genesis and start of Exodus. If you look under number five, in a fallen world, work can exploit, discriminate. It can destroy the environment. You cannot steal a thing, but you can steal a mountain. You can steal a river. You can make a lot of money, but you destroy the environment and make people sick and unhappy. Is that okay? And if you have good lawyers, you might get away with it. But still, we are destroying our planet. It can be a source of dissatisfaction. Remember Pharaoh? Remember Israelites in Egypt? Their life is determined by the quota they have to fulfill. And then God intervenes and says, this dehumanization is not what I intended. This is an anti-kingdom systemic evil. And he gives them a day off. No more quota to fulfill. Your identity is not determined by what you produce, by who you are. And let's fast forward to the New Testament. The ministry in the New Testament is based on spiritual gifts. This idea that everybody can do the same, you didn't get that from the Bible. People don't get out of Egypt until God gets a leader. Eunuch is not going to learn what Isaiah 53 means until you get a teacher. This idea that anybody can do anything if he only try hard. You certainly didn't get that from reading the Bible because the ministry in the New Testament is based on spiritual gifts. We are all gifted in different areas. Now, there are always those who try to tell you if you tried harder, if you prayed longer or read more attentively your Bible, you would be able to do anything under the sun. But once again, you didn't get that from reading the Bible. You get that from reading into the Bible. To what sense the work needs to satisfy our own needs? In the next lesson, we are going to talk about the fact that in the Ten Commandments, once the slaves are out of slavery there under Sinai, God is going to bring a concept of neighbor. The neighbor is not going to go away. The neighbor is here to stay. And you need to think about your neighbor as well. And then with the work of the Holy Spirit who gives different spiritual gifts to different people, if you look under number six, We are partners with God. Remember, that's what the covenant and the creation is all about, about being partners with God in this transformatio mundi, the changing of the world. So the human work is there to cooperate with God. I gave you the quotation from Miroslav Wolf, a theologian at Yale, who says, God, the creator, chooses to become dependent on the human helping hand and makes human work a means of accomplishing his work, his intention in the world. You didn't get this from the Greek philosophy, the idea that God is dependent on us humans, that your hands are God's hands, your feet are God's feet. If he wants to accomplish his purposes in this world, he needs you and your work. Larry? When I was at Loma Linda Academy uh, back in the 60s,
4: there was a janitor. His last name was Dawson. And years later, he was rewarded if you will, acknowledged, because he and his wife had taken in, and I believe the number was over 20 young people, into their home, provided them a support system, and gave them a Christian education, and they went on to do great things with their lives. And yet he never achieved the financial success that you ask about at the very beginning in the sense of becoming his own millionaire or billionaire. And yet by now, the direct financial contribution that the people he supervised into a adult lifestyle probably is into the hundreds of millions of dollars of successful contributions to mankind. And so I think when we look at success, we have to be very careful of what we're inferring and what we're conveying to people.
3: Yes, and let's not discount, if you have the potential to be a billionaire, you can bless humanity in a different way then whatever, you put a load and job with basic pay, whichever you want, so that we don't compare or discount that. But not everybody has that potential. So let's not make those who make a lot of money feel guilty and assume they are going to hell anyway, because they are successful, because then probably you are influenced by Marx or Adam Smith or some other ideas more than you are influenced by the Bible, because Abraham, Job, and Zacchaeus have been rich, and there is nothing wrong with being rich. The question is, as Livius put in the chat, is the other-centeredness, or the question asked at the last judgment in Matthew 25 is, who else benefited from your work, from your religion? Because if you, you are the only one, then you worship yourself. But if other people benefited from what you did, however humble, And unacknowledged, like a janitor that you mentioned, Larry, was, but if it brought blessing to people, and made the system run smoothly. And that's the great thing about the teaching of the charismata, the spiritual gifts in the New Testament, where Paul says in Corinthians, the spiritual gifts are all horizontal. The janitor who puts the chairs and sweeps the floor at the end of the Sabbath meeting is not doing a less holy job than the preacher who speaks the Word of God. Now we pray about him that his message he would take from God and give to us, that his words would be blessed. And we usually don't, don't pray about the janitor, but if you have nothing to sit on. And the place is a mess, you see how important are those spiritual gifts. Let's go to Ashley.
9: My feeling when it comes to success is that if you can find something that's both meaningful and contributes to the world and something that interests you and meets basic practical needs, then that's probably where you're going to find the most sustainable path or like niche in life. And I know there can be a lot of pressure, especially I think these days on young people. And we know that the ideal is to do something that work that doesn't feel like work. And so trying to find your purpose and passion. And so that can be a little bit overwhelming knowing (laughs) what that is. And so I think there is a balance between, hey, like it's great if you can find that but not everybody can find that. And that's okay too, because you can make a difference wherever you're at. And as long as it's something you enjoy, like even the trash guy that came to Sherry's house, think about how, if he was that in general, if he truly enjoys his job, he's blessing so many people. So I think you can do anything as long as it's something you can find enjoyment in. And if it's something you can't find enjoyment in, then there's always other options. But I know one thing that made a big difference in my life, a specific quote, and I'm going to misquote it for sure. But so I'll just say it as I remember it. But <laughs> when I was going through school and sort of at a crossroads between two career paths, I actually went to the university church and heard a sermon by Randy Roberts. And it was, I think in the series, the best thing you can do for yourself. And he had this quote and it went something like, your calling in life is the point where the world's greatest need meets your greatest interest or passion. And that really helped clarify some things for me. But yeah, it can be challenging. There's no one right or wrong answer for every person.
6: Yep. Sean? I really resonate with the quotation you placed in number six there from Miroslav Vol. and among the intellectual individuals, professionals that I work with in my toil, the industrial, commercial and personal overreach of the environment and resource-based industries are among the greatest reasons for many of these individuals to continue in their very solidified reasons to avoid Christianity, avoid church, avoid God, the God that we speak about. And so I really do enjoy contemplating this understanding of God who limits himself and chooses our involvement, and actually, as this quote indicates, the dependence that he has on our making good choices about what we do, not only with nature, but with our lives, our giftedness, the talents that we have, our personal interests that would move us into a career, etc I really do labor to find a way in my own professional expression of what I do among these individuals. I do really labor and prayerfully attempt to find a way to send a different message, and to leave a question mark in some of these folks' minds that would compel them to ask me a little bit more about why I do what I do the way I do it, which seems quite different from the overreach that industrialization seems to have as a systemic problem or process that really deeply offends so many people, if not I don't want to speak for God, but if not God himself with the wonderful creation that he's left us. So I just want to reiterate that there is a way, I believe, to find success for God in the way we express ourselves with whatever toil and vocation that we have. I happen to be a 40 plus year professional timber faller. I fell trees that have been growing on the earth for as much as 12 or 1400 years. And I have had to cross the bridge many, many times to try to justify and discover ways that I can retain value, personal value in what I do, in the processes of what I do, reasons behind what I do, but also in a way to express my absolute commitment to God and reflecting his purposes in life too. So I just wanted to express that it's very useful to see God for me in ways that he places a lot of dependency upon me to do the right thing. I think it was Ashley that early on in our conversation this morning said establishing values is a initial priority. And that very much resonated with me as well. So thank you, Daniel, for bringing up this portion of a difficult conversation for me, that we abuse God's intention for us by our overreach, which results from our not establishing a value that would make it a little bit more clear that we're not out here being selfish, we're not trying to find success in how many dollars I can turn the wood that I fell into, but that we're trying to do something for his purposes so as to speak better for him.
3: Thank you, Sean. Can you see how God is opposite of Pharaoh, who tells Israelites, your work does not determine you, how he brings liberation? Can you see how he gives different charismata, different spiritual gifts to different people so that we all have a contribution to make? Bobby Joe said it in the chat that my neighbor feels that success is having no home, no furniture and being able to travel for mission at every opportunity. I am glad that's not the only definition of success because I couldn't do it, she says. and So everybody can make their own contribution. There is a Harvard Business School study that shows that money is not the greatest motivating factor. That yes, in certain areas, you can motivate people with receiving more money, but that being part of the great team, many people value more than having a great salary. But if the work is more than your fun, your satisfaction, if it's more than socializing, if you see it as part of what God does, participating in transformation of the world, in spreading the kingdom, each one of us making their own individual contribution, that the spiritual gifts are not vertically orientated, that someone has more holy job than someone else, and those who cut the trees do equally holy job as those who teach in the preschool, as those who teach at the university level just have different passions and different vocation. can be incredibly liberating and it can help people who are in indignified, dissatisfying, non-creative positions and jobs to see they are also transforming this world on behalf of God and part of something that the Holy Spirit and Christ are doing now. Bob? I just
8: turned 70 this uh, week and my wife hosted a
3: beautiful party
8: at the Dorchester yeah. and I would say it was very successful. About 80 people came and it's amazing to be honored that way, to be successful in a sense that I have a lot of friends that made an effort to contact me and to come out and give me some honor. So I don't know what my goal is now, but I
3: survive each day. I have Parkinson's disease and it's a struggle sometimes to stay on my feet. Thank you, Bob, and happy birthday from the group, all of us.
4: Larry? Moses was a complete failure his first attempt to do what he believed God was calling him to do was an abject failure for 40 years. And he had to go off and learn to do something completely different. So he was 80, a very old dude. So he was a very old person by the time he was called to do what was the most important thing he did in his entire life. And that was re-educate an entire group of people on how to think about God. So, trying to keep all this in balance is very complicated.
3: Okay, glad that we recognize it. I'm always worried as a teacher when people say, oh, this is very simple. Either they did not reflect much or they didn't read much because the planet on which I walk is very complicated. That's right. Michael, and we need to move on to Integrity. I was thinking
8: of other examples of success that are, in my opinion, misinterpreted. When Bill Gates and Paul Allen met with representative of IBM, they had created a personal computer. They had no operating system for it. And that's what Gates proposed to them. Let us write your operating system. And they met and they said, let these guys do it. Nobody's going to buy these things anyway. They couldn't think out of the box. They couldn't see. Their idea of a computer was a big mainframe. And so they let them go ahead and write the operating system and billions of dollars later. And Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, has done just a huge amount of good work. And the idea of what we need to do is take away that money that they have and distribute it to the poor. Those programs don't work either. Just simply handing money out to poor people is not a solution to improve their circumstance. There has to be a balance. And the hard part is striking that balance and trying to figure out if I have material success, what do I owe society, which is my way of saying, what do I owe to God? And whenever I tried to do that, I looked back and I said, well, I really didn't ever give enough. I should have given more. And I think that's a question for each of us. How do we really honor God by our
3: work and effort. Okay, thank you. Are we clear on this transformation of the world as an extension of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our days? We have a lot to say about the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We call it the sanctification. We have a lot to say about the work of the Holy Spirit through us. We call it mission. But generally, we are quite ignorant of the work of the Holy Spirit around us, what the Holy Spirit is doing through other people. And as Michael mentioned, that God can use even the operating system to become a foundation that deals with uh, difficult medical problems in Africa or blesses people who are less fortunate that would not be there if it were not for those millions and billions of dollars earned on a brilliant idea that the world just needed, whose time has come. So we all make their own contribution as part of transformatio mundi, the transformation of the world. All right, so let's go to the importance of integrity.
5: The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate.
3: So he left everything in Joseph's hands because he completely trusted him. That was... The integrity of Joseph. And by the way, if you read the story on, you will discover that the Lord was with Joseph even when he was in prison. So once again, be careful how you measure the success. The question for us is, given the context of money, given the context of work, given the context of greed, why integrity is such important? Attitude, character feature. Why is it so important? Iris?
10: With success comes power. With power comes often less people being able to control you and to call you out. And apparently in our fallen nature, that's where a lot of people, given the opportunity, can fall into a ditch and undo many of the great and wonderful things (laughs) that they wanted to do. You can look at some political leaders, (laughs) maybe a little dangerous, but let's take Erdogan, for example. I may not know it very well, but I think in the early stages of his career, he did a lot of good for his country. But I think this power that he has held has corrupted him. (laughs) And so I think integrity, I don't know, that is what really protects from the downfall of power.
3: Excellent. Thank you. I
7: think integrity is really probably one of the most important traits to have because integrity is related to trust. You don't trust people if they don't have some degree of integrity. You don't know who they really are. And I think integrity and trust are the basis for relationships or meaningful relationships. And so I think that if one is going to have relationships and one wants dependable, trusting, trustable friends, and so I think if one's going to maximize what the kind of lifestyle that God would like for us to have, he would like for us to be those kind of people because there are not that many of them. And I think if we're going to represent what God would like to have, integrity is sort of the beginning point in becoming that kind of person that God would like to utilize and sort of furthering his aims.
3: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Sean.
6: Yes, in addition to Dan's comment, this is the foundational sin and error that Satan brought into this accusation against God and his integrity. So I think Paul indicates in his writing how significant it is to demonstrate that God is indeed just when his case is taken into court. This is a matter of integrity and this is what he's been accused of. And I think this is, in addition to what other comments have been made, this is perhaps one of the primary reasons integrity is such of growing in character to represent him correctly.
3: Okay, thank you. So you look with Pharaoh, and the harder the people work, the richer the Pharaoh gets. So you get the model of extortion economy. However, the Bible presents the empowering economy, where you work for the common good and abundance and not only of individuals, but of the community, of the society. And that's why integrity plays such an important role, because in the lack of it, and as Livius put, you are only concerned with self-interest. And whatever gets you there, it's okay. And if you can cut the corners and cheat people in the process, as long as you benefit, that's okay. But the New Testament model of empowering others is very important, because they are blessed as the image of God. Okay, Larry, and then we need to finish. I think that's the
4: key reason why when God called David a man after his own heart was the fact that integrity was what ruled his life. Yes, he made mistakes, as all humans do, but unlike his predecessor, he didn't excuse it and try to cover it up. He acknowledged it and learned from it and moved on. And that becomes the key model, why he's the king model that Christ emulates.
3: All right. Karen?
2: Yes, it's interesting to explore some of the research around compassionate work and how effective it is and how workplaces that are compassionate often prosper in ways that are unexpected. And so the power of compassion alongside integrity in helping to create positive workplaces.
3: Yes. And there is a research that indicates that if we compare ourselves with those who are more successful than we are, that it kills empathy and compassion in us. Yes. That's why be careful who you compare yourself with. Yes, you cannot live with this society without money. It can be a useful vehicle for getting things you need. At the same time, it can be a powerful symbol of influence, power, success and virtue. It can be used for good. can be abused. If someone did an objective analysis of the successful economic production in Egypt, they might have concluded that the pain of slaves was necessary, was normal, even natural consequence of labor, just the cost of doing business. Yet God intervenes and says, no, I have something better to offer to you. He brings a new perspective. And the challenge for us is, do we see ourselves as his hands, his feet, his collaborators, his partners, In transforming this world? Can we be part of this community that cares about the neighbors and in tune with the heart of God because we understand how God operates? And that's the challenge we have when we discuss finances, money, possessions, and connected with success in the society where we live nowadays. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you that you care about material things like money, possessions, And that in this world, in this society, we cannot live without them. And thank you that you promise to supply what you will always supply. And we pray that you give us integrity. You help us to see ourselves as your partners. Help us to see what we've got, both in terms of giftedness and the difference and the goodness that we can contribute to other people being blessed. Help us to develop our spiritual gifts or whatever you have entrusted to us so that we can render other-centered, compassionate service to you and to fellow human beings, so that the community we are part of can be attractive to those who don't know you yet and who feel crashed and alienated in this world and left behind because somehow there's nothing in it for them. Help us to be useful tools in your hands, to be a source of blessing for them too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.